Hello, and welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our 19th No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles commentary concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare regulation, veganism as the clear and unequivocal moral baseline of the animal rights movement, and creative, nonviolent vegan education as the cornerstone of animal rights activism and advocacy and the principle of ahimsa, or nonviolence, and its role in all of our advocacy efforts. Indeed, its importance is a general matter. If you think about it, the problems that we face with respect to non-human animals are problems of violence. In fact, most of the problems we face involving humans are problems of violence. Racism, sexism, homophobia, all of these things are problems of violence. We are not going to solve problems of violence with more violence. Violence only begets violence. I'd like you to think about the animal rights movement as a new peace movement, as an all-encompassing peace movement, as, as a movement that includes all sentient beings and that recognizes that the only way we're going to shift the paradigm is shifted away from violence and toward peace. In this commentary, I am going to talk about a topic that a number of you have asked me to speak about, which is the topic of how do we talk to non-vegans about veganism. And what I'd like to do in this commentary is to discuss with you five principles that I find helpful in thinking about talking with non-vegans about veganism, and I will share them with you for whatever value they have to you. And then, based on the feedback that I get from you, I can do future commentaries in which I address specific questions that you, you have or issues that have come up in your own vegan advocacy. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, but in this commentary, I will, as I said, share with you five principles that, um, that, that I think about and uh, that shape my vegan advocacy and have for almost 30 years now. And, um, and then I will... Uh, let you respond. Okay, uh, let me say from the outset that the biggest impediment we have to educating members of the public about veganism, people who are not vegans, talking with them about vegans, and I'm talking about people uh, who are eating all animal products. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know uh, people who are eating meat, dairy, everything else. Um, the biggest problem that we have is, unfortunately, the animal welfare movement and, um, and those people who claim to be vegan but do not want to promote veganism as a moral baseline and instead promote happy meat and flexitarianism and all that sort of thing. Uh, this is extremely problematic and makes our discussion with people very difficult because when we are talking with them about veganism, what what shapes their thinking is the fact that these animal organizations are promoting non-veganism and telling them that happy meat and happy eggs and happy milk and all this other stuff uh, is okay, is good. And so that, that is a barrier. I mean, many, many times people say to me, well, you know, why don't you just promote veganism, why, don't you, why do you continue to criticize these organizations that promote welfareism and happy meat and all that sort of thing? And the answer is 
part of, unfortunately, part of the discussion with people about veganism is debunking this nonsense promoted by these welfare organizations that happy meat and happy eggs and happy milk and happy torture and all of this stuff really represents a significant improvement and allows them to discharge their moral obligations to animals. So why, you know, what's veganism about? I mean, if I'm, if I'm eating happy eggs, isn't that, isn't that enough? Or, you know, isn't that a really a great step in the right direction? No, it's not. No, it's not. And so I want to share with you two things that have happened just in the past basically half a day to me. Because these things happen every single day, and I'm sure that they happen to many of you as well. Last night I was in Whole Foods. And um, most of the, no, I take that back, all of the small health food stores that once existed uh, in this area are gone. And uh, one has a choice between uh, Whole Foods and Trader Joe's for organic products and, and other things that people like us consume. And so I was in Whole Foods, and I was at the checkout. I actually have the number of conversations I have with people, both checkout people and people who are standing in back of me. Um, the number of people... I, I actually view trips to Whole, Food, uh, Whole Foods as educational experiences in terms of... That's, that's, that's a place where I do vegan advocacy. I do it in the classroom. I do it in, uh, in various public lectures. I do it in podcasts. I do it in books. Uh, but I also do it at um, the checkout line at Whole Foods. So I was standing there, and I had my my stuff on the on the um, on the uh, uh, belt there, whatever you call it, and um, and I had a number of cartons of this uh, coconut milk fake ice cream. Uh, I guess I you know I don't have it in front of me. I think it's purely decadent. I don't know. It's made by some company called Turtle Mountain in Eugene, Oregon, one of my favorite places, and um, and. Uh, so I had a, a, a number of cartons. I'm not going to tell you how many cartons I had because it's a little embarrassing because I like this stuff a lot. Uh, and it's this coconut, it, it, it's the coconut non-dairy fake ice cream, but it's the coconut flavored coconut non-dairy fake ice cream. And, um, and so I had a number of uh, cartons of this product on the, on the belt. And uh, a woman who was in back of me said, uh, you know, I, I have, I've seen that uh, in the freezer, and I really love coconut, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm skeptical about whether it could taste as, as you know, anything like ice cream. And, um, and she said, is it good? And I looked at her and I said, uh, no, it's fantastic. And she said, really? I said, absolutely. I said, why do you think I'm buying more than one carton of it. And uh, she said, it's really good. I said, oh yeah. I said, now, I said, let me be honest with you. I said, um, I am a vegan and I haven't eaten uh, cow ice cream in almost 30 years. I said, uh, so my recollection of what it tastes like is, um, is probably uh, faded, <laughs> to say the very least. It is faded. And I said, but um, my recollection is such that I cannot remember in the days in which I was not a vegan, I don't remember ever 
having a frozen confection that was as good as this stuff. And and then we stopped talking completely about the the coconut ice cream. She then switched to the fact that I told her that I haven't eaten cow's ice cream for 30 years and that I'm a vegan. She said, you haven't had dairy products for 30 years? And I said, no. And she said, do you miss them? I said, not at all. I said, when I first became a vegan, in 19, I guess, 82, 83, I don't know, it was a long time ago. Um, I said, the choices, you know, the, the things, the, the, the substitute things that you could get, particularly if you wanted to continue to eat processed foods, which at that, which at that time, unfortunately, I did. Um, you know, the, the, the choices were, were uh, scarce. Uh, and, um, and I said, but, you know, the, the, the choices available now, I mean, you, you, you don't have to give up anything. You can continue to eat all the stuff that you want, including stuff like this. You can get, you know, you can get frozen confections, you can get candies, you can get cookies, you can get cupcakes, you can get, uh, all, also, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and you can get fake meats and, you know, soy milks and stuff like that and almond milks and whatever. And, um, and now by this time I'm checking out. And she said, do you have a few minutes and uh, to talk with me about this? She had a slightly larger, larger number of things she was getting. And I said, uh, yeah, sure, because one of the principal rules of my life, and I hope for at least some of yours, is never, ever, ever, ever pass up an opportunity to talk to somebody about veganism, particularly if they want to. Um, and, um, you know, if they're, if they're reaching out to you, it's okay, do it, whatever else you're doing, do it. And so, um, I said, yes. Now, again, the number of times this happens that, that, um, I will start engaging someone at the, the, the checkout line in the checkout line, someone who's in back of me, who's commenting on whether it's the coconut fake, I don't even know what to call it. The coconut fake ice cream. I hate calling it ice cream. It's not ice cream. It doesn't have cream in it. The frozen coconut confection. Um, and, um, you know, or it's, you know, the fact that I'm buying, uh, you know, six heads of kale um, and, or something like that. And someone will say, what are you doing with that? And I'll say, I consume, you know, I consume one, sometimes two of these things a day. Um, and, uh, it, but I have these conversations all the time with people. I mean, as I say, I mean, going to Whole Foods, the, you know, the, the downside is I'm patronizing uh, a corporation that is insidious in my view, uh, because it is, uh, capitalizing. It is, it is promoting this happy meat, happy eggs, happy milk, happy torture stuff that, and it, that bothers me a lot. Uh, and, and, um, but the, the upside is that I have a marvelous opportunity uh, every time I go, uh, and almost every time I'm in there, I get involved in a discussion with somebody uh, about veganism. And and so uh, after she finished checking, going through the checkout line, we went uh, outside and talked for a few minutes. And um, we got into a discussion which focused on the fact that, you know, she said, why are you a vegan? You know, what, what she, well, no, let me take that back. She assumed I was a vegan for reasons of health. And she started talking to me about, uh, you know, that she had, she was curious about it, that she had read some things that indicated that animal products weren't good. Uh, and that, that, you know, she was thinking about it and that she had really cut back on, on uh, her meat. Um, and I, I quickly followed up by saying, uh, but you know, dairy, 
As a woman, you ought to be concerned about dairy because uh, uh, dairy increases estrogenicity, uh, hormonally sensitive uh, cancers like breast cancer and things like that. Uh, are are uh, you know in, you know are exacerbated uh, by by dairy products uh, and and you know so we we had that sort of exchange and and then after a few minutes um, and, and I I will not going to lie to you I'm not going to lie and say that my moving the conversation in the direction I wanted it to go was to some degree influenced by my perception that my cartons of the frozen coconut confection we're going to melt. And, and I, that concerned me. Um, you know, and now I was sort of thinking in my head as I was calculating this, um, what's the, you know, the, the, the opportunity cost of my continuing the conversation for a really long time is, which I, which I think um, uh, would have happened <laughs> if I didn't move it in a direction, uh, is that the downside is I'm going to have melted coconut frozen confection will no longer be frozen. And, um, but the upside is she was really engaged and wanted to talk. So I, I just said to her, I said, look, I said, um, I certainly, I said, I certainly think veganism is magnificent for your health. And, and I said, you know, it, it, the, the, the empirical evidence is quite clear that, um, you know, eating animal products is, is killing us. And I, I think that that's fairly clear. It's, it's basically stated in everything I read, um, and, uh, and it's, you know, an ecological disaster. I said, but I have to be honest with you. That's not the reason I did it uh, almost 30 years ago, nor is it the reason I continue to, the primary reason I continue to do it now. Yeah, it's got great benefits. Uh, I have more energy than, you know, than, than people who are half my age. Uh, I feel great. Um, and, um, and, and whatnot. And that's magnificent, magnificent uh, benefit of veganism. I mean, which sort of makes sense. You don't put violence in your body and your body reacts violently. Uh, and so I said, but I do it for reasons of morality. And she said, really? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, that's the, that's the reason I did it 30 years ago. And I said, it's the reason, it's, it's the reason, the primary reason I continue to do it now. I said, it's got benefits and I am concerned about the environment and, and you know, I'm certainly concerned about my health and stuff, but but the, the main reason why I do it is that, you know, it, it, it's just morally, it, it makes no sense morally. I mean, if you take morality, if you like animals, or if you think animals, you don't have to like them. If you consider them to be members of the moral community at all, um, you know, whatever else, however else you treat them, you got to rule out eating them or eating products made from them. And, and um, she said, well, she said, did you see, she said there were banner, there was a banner in, the, in Whole Foods, and it, which was correct. There was a huge banner hanging from the ceiling. And I meant to write down what it said so that I could, so that I could uh, blog about it or include it in the podcast, but um, I didn't have uh, I didn't have a pen uh, with me or anything to write it on, and uh, I will do it at some point uh, now that I know it's hanging there. But um, it basically was this banner that was hanging near the meat counter. It was hanging from the ceiling. It was a big banner. And it, it was something about how th- there's this animal compassion foundation that Whole Foods is promoting and that, you know, we, we treat our animals humanely or some, some nonsense like that. This is hanging near all the, the rotting corpses that Whole Foods is selling. And she said, did you see that? And I said, yeah, I did. 
and and um, she said, well, you know, don't you think that you know that that Whole Foods is making progress in this direction? I said, no, absolutely not. I said, first of all, um, I have no reason to believe, based on what I've read, that the animal compassion standards are resulting in any sort of significant wel- welfare benefit for those animals. I said, I think it's a marketing tool. It's something which you know Whole Foods is trying to project this sort of happy meat. You know, you know, the the animals are sort of lining up. Um, and, you know, saying, please, please let me become a cow in the animal compassion program of Whole Foods. Please, please let me be slaughtered in a temple granted slaughterhouse. I mean, since in my judgment, this is so, so surreal. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. But anyway, I said, uh, so no, I don't think that there's a significant welfare benefit involved. I said, but think about this. I said, you and I are, 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 are talking right now about veganism. And one of the things that you are thinking about is, should you be, you know, should you be eating happy meat instead of? Uh, and she thought the happy meat thing was was humorous. I guess she had not heard that before. Um, but but I said you're thinking about eating happy meat as a response to the problem. You know, I said you you, you on some level think of this as as a problem, whether it's a health problem, a moral problem, and an environmental problem. But your response is eat happy meat. And I said this is this is the problem in a nutshell. Is um, you have people who are promote. I mean, you have you have this idea that the solution to the problem is happy meat. And I said this is going to cause you to continue to consume these products rather than thinking about what I'm talking to you now about in terms of veganism as a matter of fundamental justice. We can't justify consuming animals. And I asked her. I said, um, "This is always a safe question." Do you have or have you ever had a dog or a cat or some other non-human companion that you really loved? And she said, yes, I have a dog now. And I said, do you love your dog? And she said, of course I do. And then she started telling me about some dog that she had that died and she grieved for a really long period of time before she got this one. And, you know, she loves this dog and she doesn't know what's going to happen when this dog goes. And I said, I said, "Um, I understand. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, have you ever thought about what is what the hell is the difference between this animal that you love, that you whose death you fear, and the the cow or the pig or the chicken or the fish whose corpse you're gonna stick a fork into when you go home? And she actually had on in her uh she had bought some fish. And, it, you know, Whole Foods sells these, you know, at least the one near my house has these, like, huge fish corpses sitting in ice bins and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the whole whole fish, you know, the, and they're quite large, a lot of them are. And, um, and, uh, and they sit in these ice things, these ice uh, receptacles to keep their rotting flesh from rotting faster. God, how can you put that into your system? I just don't understand it. I just... Rotting flesh, uh, rotting, decomposing animal products, and we stick them into our mouths as they're decomposing. Um, in any event, so uh, we had this discussion, and it, it's interesting because here, what is she focusing on? The fact that there's a banner hanging from the wall that makes her sort of feel better about this. Yeah, yeah, you know, she's she knows that there's a lot of mistreatment of animals, and she knows they know she she's aware of this, but they're doing something. They're doing something. They're, they they have formed the Animal Compassion Foundation, and they're selling happy meat. And this is a step in the right direction. No, it is not. It is a step backward. Because what it is doing is deluding people into believing that happy meat involves a significant welfare benefit. 
It doesn't. You know, it is the difference, as I've said before, and I will say again, right now, for instance, um, is there a difference between being waterboarded on a padded waterboard or on a bare waterboard? And the answer is, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess there is some difference. I mean, you know, the, the, the padded waterboard is probably a little more comfortable. But does it address the problem of the morality of torture? Is it a response? I mean, if somebody said to you, look, I'm really concerned about torture, so I want you to join my campaign for padded waterboards, you'd think they were nuts. Similarly, you know, I mean, these, the, the Animal Compassion Foundation, all this happy meat stuff, these happy meat labels that, that all the organizations that, that you know, because all the organizations, or many of the large organizations, are now actually promoting happy meat labels. They have things like Freedom Food in Britain, and they have things like uh, Certified Humane Raised and Handled here that organizations like HSUS are involved in and promote. I mean, these are stamps of approval on corpses, on animal products. These things don't involve significant welfare benefits. If you're a cow, you know what? The difference between being slaughtered in a Temple Grandin slaughterhouse and being slaughtered someplace else is a difference without a hell of a lot of distinction. Think about that. You're going to be slaughtered. So Temple Grandin slaughterhouses, is that like, you know, that's, that, that's the answer? No, it's not the answer. These things involve relatively insignificant welfare benefits, if they involve welfare benefits at all. I mean, a, that's a big question. Okay? But they involve insignificant welfare benefits, in my view at least. And they make people feel more comfortable about continuing to consume animal products. So, you know, it's not really the answer. As a matter of fact, it's part of the problem. And then when you compound it with the fact that you have organizations like PETA giving awards to organizations like Whole Foods for promoting this stuff. What message, people, does that send? What message does it send? You know, you have, you have PETA giving awards to Temple Grandin for designing slaughterhouses. What message does that send? It sends a normative, a moral message that consuming products slaughtered in Temple Grandin-approved slaughterhouses or purchasing rotting corpses from Whole Foods that have that you know where the, the the cows have have applied to be part of the Animal Compassion Foundation or whatever that whatever Whole Foods calls that delusion, um, you have you have Peter promoting this stuff. Well, to the average person on the street, they associate Peter with concern about animals. Okay, and so when you have PETA promoting these things, what message gets sent out? The message that gets sent out is the moral message that this stuff is okay. When you boycott Kentucky Fried Chicken until they agree to, to buy gassed chickens from their producers and phase that in over a period of three million years, but you know when, when, when you announce a boycott of Kentucky Fried Chicken until they purchase gassed chicken rather than stunned chicken from their suppliers... And then they agree to that, and then you call off the boycott, and you praise them for their concern about animal welfare. People, what message does it send out? It sends out the message that this is an all right thing to do. That, yeah, you call off the boycott, you call off the boycott, and that basically means you're saying, giving a green light to going and patronizing these places again. So the biggest impediment that we have 
toward educating, you know, the, the, the biggest obstacle toward effective vegan education are these animal organizations that are promoting happy meat, flexitarianism, this, that, and the other thing. Nonsense. Yes, I understand it's a good business model for them. You know, encourage people to do very little. And encourage them to believe that the, the solution to the problem of animal exploitation is go and eat cage-free eggs. Have them do very little and then pat them on the back so hard that they'll fall over and tell them, you know, oh, you're doing a great thing. This is great. This is terrific. And they'll send you a donation. It's a great business model. It's not particularly good for the animals, though. So I would suggest that, um, I mean, I mean, it, it's ironic. I mean, but, but when we're talking about talking to non-vegans about veganism, biggest obstacle are animal people who are promoting this happy meat stuff. I mean, this morning, this morning I, I, uh, I saw a, um, somebody sent me a link to Compassion and World Farming. That's a, that's a British organization, a British welfarist organization. And uh, apparently, uh, I, I, it looks like there's a National Baking Week in Britain or something. Yes, I guess, yes, there's a National Baking Week. And Compassion in, in World Farming is encouraging people to bake with compassion. Uh, in October, this is from the, uh, the Compassion in World Farming website. In October, it's National Baking Week, encouraging the people of Britain to get baking. But if people are baking, we need to make sure that they are using free-range and high-welfare ingredients. Now, the one thing that we know is that you can make cakes and cupcakes and all sorts of, of things uh, without any animal products. Really delicious. You can make, I mean, I, I would defy. Uh, I, I was recently treated to some vegan cupcakes that were made by... Uh, Professor Gary Steiner, uh, we had dinner, uh, we actually were, we attended an event at his house, and he made these absolutely rocking vegan cupcakes. They were, they were outrageous. And I, I mean, I know you think that I'm partial to sweets, given this obsession I have developed with the frozen coconut confection, but I'm actually not very much of a sweet eater at all. And uh, when we were at Gary's house, uh Two cupcakes, you know, I, I ate two, which is probably two more than I have eaten in the past three years. I mean, I'm not a big eater of that stuff. And they were absolutely delicious. And uh, perhaps he can, he can post his, uh, his uh, recipe on, on his website because they were just incredible. But in any event, you can make all that stuff without animal products. Now, I understand Compassion and World Farming is a welfarist organization. They make that very clear. But where there are alternatives that don't involve any violence, where you can where you can make a product where nobody can tell the difference. I mean, I for you know I want to make it clear: if you could tell a difference, that wouldn't matter. I mean, my view is you should never eat animal products uh, under any circumstance. Um, but where you have an opportunity to say to people, you don't need to to use any animal products in this. Why not at least do that? Why encourage people affirmatively to use animal products? This is the problem. You have all of these, quote, animal groups, end quote, which are all businesses. These are all businesses. And you've got them promoting happy meat. You've got them promoting happy eggs. You've got them promoting happy milk and, and all sorts of happy torture. 
That's the problem. This then becomes the background noise of the society in terms of people saying, well, you know, look, why should I think about veganism when I have animal people telling me I can do a lot less and, and discharge my moral obligations to animals? That's a real problem, people. That's a really serious problem. Okay, let me talk about my five principles. Many years ago, when I was a teenager, Think about this, days before computers. Nobody even knew what a computer was back then, I don't think. I never heard, heard about computers until I was much older. Um, and and uh, we didn't have cell phones. And it was a different world in a lot of ways. And we only had three channels of television, actually. Um, but in any event, we had a book we had to read called Diary of Anne Frank. Now, I suspect that most of you have read that book. If you haven't, do not, do not let another day go by without reading that book. It's one of the most important books written in the 20th century. It's just a magnificent statement of the irrepressibility of love and of the human spirit. It's a marvelous book written by a teenage woman who is hiding out from the Nazis and is eventually found by the Nazis and is killed in a concentration camp. And this woman, uh, who was, when killed, a teenager, she may have been young physically, but she had the um, spiritual maturity of a very, very old soul. And uh, the book, The Diary of Anne Frank, is profound in so many ways I can't begin to express it. It's just, it's a marvelous book. If you haven't read it, you must read it. It's just a marvelous book. And just every page is filled with observations that are uh, mind-boggling. And one of the things she says is, despite everything, I believe people are really good at heart. Now, here's a kid writing at a time of human history. I mean, you know, there's a lot of insanity in human history, but, you know, <laughs> that, that, the, the Holocaust and that period of time with Hitler and the Nazis... Uh, was a was a really hideous, horrible time, obviously, and and um, and here's this 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 woman who's hiding in an attic with her family and and um, has to worry about being discovered every day, and eventually is discovered and is killed. And she says, despite everything, I really believe that people are good at heart. Principle number one, yeah, there may be some real rotten apples out there, people who are absolutely morally incorrigible, like the people who set up and ran the Holocaust, and all the people who went along with it. However, however, the default position should be, and default position as far as I'm concerned, is that people are good. They are concerned about moral issues. They are educable. People are really good at heart. That is, for me, one of the most important principles that guides my, my animal advocacy, my, my advocacy generally. And I'm not just interested in the, the question of non-human animals. I'm also interested in issues about racism and sexism and heterosexism and, and economic justice and things like that. But... The thing that guides all of my advocacy is this notion that, at heart, people are good. That unless you... you the, the presumption is rebuttable. Yeah, you can rebut it. Yeah, you, you, can, you can prove to me that you don't really care about morality. But 
I think most people do care about morality. Most people are educable. Most people want to do the morally right thing. They may be confused about it, but they want to do the right thing. Indeed, you should always assume anybody who's talking with you about the animal issue is engaged, is interested. I want to get in, uh, in, the, in, in the other principles. I want to talk a little, little bit about uh, how you deal with people who are aggressive or disrespectful or rude or whatever. We'll get to that in a second. But the bottom line is, assume that people are good, that they are interested in moral, they, they care about moral issues. Because I think that that's actually empirically true. I mean, I think that that's empirically true. Have I met some people who really don't care about morality? Yeah, I have. Have they been few and far between? Yeah, they have. I mean, it's not to say that. I mean, it's not to say that they that we end up agreeing on everything because that's not the case. But it is the case that that I think most people care about doing the right thing morally, and they try. They are trying to figure what figure that out. They want. They're trying to determine. They spend a lot of their time trying to figure out what that is. There is a, a an anti-human sort of misanthropic strain that runs through the animal advocacy movement. It manifests itself in expressions like, I love animals, but I hate people. People are rotten. People are terrible. You know, let's use prisoners for experiments. <laughs> Things like that. And this anti-human, misanthropic strain that runs through the animal movement um, is distressing to me. It's really distressing to me. Uh, I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know what the... I mean, if you really think that... And a lot of... A lot of quote, animal people, unquote, appear to think that because I've heard that so many times over the years and it manifests itself in so many different ways in the things that people say, they write, the things that they write, um, you know, in terms of their, their, their blogs and their, you know, whatever. Um, the, the, the level of, of you know, uh, the level of misanthropic thinking of, of, you know, people are bad and, and whatnot is, 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 is startling. I don't know why, if you think that, you know, I don't know, like, why you bother. I mean, if you think that most people are, like, moral eunuchs, then why are you bothering to, to you know, talk, try to talk to them at all? So my default position is everybody I meet, everybody I meet in a checkout line at Whole Foods, everybody I meet in a subway, everybody I meet, I mean, everybody I meet, I try to engage to the extent that I can, I will try to engage in a discussion about veganism, in a discussion about nonviolence and, and, and our relationship with non-human animals. And I assume that all of them are interested, and if they're not, they'll they'll not engage me. But but um, but I assume that they do care about moral issues, and they are educable. Okay, that they that they care about moral issues. They're educable. They're trying to figure out what the morally right thing to do is. Now, I want to I want to address as a um, as a subsidiary issue to principle one. Principle one: default position. People are really good at heart. Okay, um, a subsidiary problem is this. Or issue is this. Uh, frequently, when I talk about uh, animal welfare and I try to uh, debunk animal welfare, I use imagery like I'll say, well, you know, think about it. We think torture is bad. Uh, would we campaign for humane torture? And, and most people, uh, as a matter of fact, I can't remember a counterexample, but people don't, you know, people say, yeah, I mean, it would be crazy. Wouldn't, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, advocate for humane torture. Well, you think rape is bad? Well, of course I do. Well, you wouldn't advocate for humane rape, would you? Uh, no, you wouldn't advocate for humane child molestation, would you? Um, no, of course not. 
well, then why are you advocating? If you think, you know, if you agree that we can't morally justify our exploitation of animals, why do we advocate for padded waterboards for animals? And some people uh, think that what that argumentation strategy or whatever means is that those people who consume animal products have the same moral standing as do rapists, pedophiles, and slave owners, or torturers, or whatever. I mean, slavery is another example. We think slavery is a bad idea, right? Yeah, well, we don't advocate for humane slavery, do we? No, we did. You know, that's, that we wouldn't do that. When we when we find slavery in different parts of the world, because it does exist, nobody approves it. Everybody says it's bad. Everybody agrees it's bad. Nobody defends it. But when you know, and and we're not talking about bad working conditions. That's a whole other issue. Yeah, and that exists all over the place. And some people do defend that. But we're talking about chattel slavery, where people are, people are bought and sold. Nobody defends that, at least publicly. And and um, you know, when we find it, nobody ever proposes that I've ever seen says, well, you know, we we found this pocket of slavery in country X. Let's let's have a campaign to have humane slavery in country X. Okay, that argumentation. Strategy, which I think is is effective for, and, and and why do I use that? Well, I use that because it illustrates the following point. It illustrates the point that where we identify institutions that have no redeeming value whatsoever, like rape, like child molestation, like slavery, like torture, things that are really bad, where persons are treated as things, where they are treated exclusively as means to the ends of others, where their personhood is ignored completely, not just a little, but completely, and they are treated as things. Where we identify those sorts of institutional forms of exploitation, we generally advocate, our our default position is to advocate the abolition of those things, even when we know that they're not going to disappear overnight. I mean, child molestation, you know, has been with us for a long, you know, ever, and will be with us for a long time. Rape, I mean, you know, uh, rape is a real problem. Uh, you know, I read something a couple of weeks ago, uh, as I recall, it was something, it was really, it was one in four women in college will either be raped or attempted to be raped. I mean, that's, that's stunning. I mean, that's stunning. So it's not the que- it's not a question of well you know rape is going away or pedophilia is going away uh, and so it's all right to you know not promote humane forms of those types of exploitation. Rape is a is a problem. It's been a problem forever in human history, which has been dominated in so many ways by men. But rape is a problem. Pedophilia is a problem. It has been a problem forever. But nobody advocates humane rape or humane pedophilia or humane slavery. And so we, when we identify these institutions, we, we advocate their, their, their abolition, not their regulation. And so my argument is, why don't we do the same for animals? Yes, it's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. But, you know, and it's not going to end overnight. But let's make a start by advocating veganism and try to educate people about veganism because ultimately that's the only thing that's going to work. The only thing that's going to shift us from the paradigm of animals as property to animals as persons is by decreasing the demand and decreasing the demand on a wide-scale basis. We can do this. We can educate. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that we can educate people about this. I see it in, in my own life, and I, I talk to people all the time who are engaging in effective vegan advocacy 
without any large organization, without any money, they're doing it and they're having an effect. I see it all the time. So, this is not to say, when I use these, these, this, this argumentation strategy or whatever you want to call it, um, I am not trying to encourage people to think that and I always make clear that I'm not saying, because if, if I'm asked, if someone says, well, are you saying because I consume animal products, I'm the same as a rapist or a child molester or a slave owner? I always respond to that by saying the institutions of slave ownership, of rape, of child molestation, these are all similar to animal exploitation in that they completely ignore the personhood of moral persons. They are institutions which treat moral persons exclusively as means to the ends of others and thereby turn them into things who are outside of the moral community. So in that sense, these institutions are the same. And actually, many of the attempts to regulate slavery fail for the same reason, because human slavery and animal ownership and exploitation, the institution of animal exploitation and ownership, function similarly as economic matters. I mean, you know, animal welfare doesn't work, neither did slave welfare. So there were lots of laws that supposedly protected slaves, and they didn't work. Um, they didn't work for the same reason they don't work with, with animals. Um, and I've discussed that in other commentaries and, and in the books I've written and a lot of the other things that I've done, so you can you can look at that stuff if you want. Um, but I... So yeah, the institutions are similar, but this is not to say that everybody who who eat, consumes animal products has the moral status of a of a of a rapist or a, or a, a, a child molester, or whatever. Morality is a matter of intention, at least as far as I'm concerned. And I realize that that may be controversial with some people, and that's fine. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, morality is primarily a matter of intention. It's it's what are your intentions, and and somebody who is consuming animal products, do I think that's a good thing? No. Do I think they're acting immorally? Yeah, they're engaging in actions which I think cannot be morally justified. But as, but as far as making judgments about their personal moral integrity, yeah, I'm real critical of animal welfare. I'm real critical of the consumption of animal products. But I do not make judgments, moral judgments about people. And I would encourage you not to do that either. Because Morality is a matter of intention. Most people don't know real. I mean, I mean, people need to be educated so that they can make intelligent moral choices. Now, if you get to a point, and this is a problem, this is a problem that we all have with our personal relationships, right? I mean, you get to a point where someone's really educated and understands everything, and then turns to you and says, and maybe you've had this experience. I have in my life. I mean, I've been doing it for thirty years, so there are very few experiences in this regard I have not had. Um, but where somebody turns to you and says. I know what you're saying. What you're saying is right. I agree with what you're saying, and I don't care. I mean, I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is no moral justification for what I'm doing, and I don't care. That can, you know, that that you may come to a point with somebody where you've educated them, and they understand, and they they still they they turn to you and say, "I don't care. I'm going to continue this behavior because I don't care." Then you have to make a decision about the moral integrity of that person. But where you live in a society where animal animal consumption is ubiquitous, I mean, everybody does it, and they do it all the time. Most people can't think clearly about this because they've never been asked to think clearly about it. 
They could if they were, you know, if they were educated, which is what this enterprise is all about, isn't it? Is educating them. They could think clearly about it. But no one's asking them to. So, you know, I think it's really important to realize that default principle one, default position, people are really good at heart, they care about morality, they're educable. Okay? Don't make moral judgments about them. You can you can assess the morality of actions and of institutions. Yes. Consuming animals and exploiting animals is no more morally justifiable than is any other form of depersonization or thingification or whatever you want to call it. But that doesn't mean that everybody who engages in consuming animals is morally the same as a rapist or a pedophile or whatever. So when you're talking to people, be thinking, because you know what? Your presentation... Your presentation, when you're when you're talking to people, is influenced by these sorts of think these sorts of feelings that you have, and so if your default position is people are good, and the person I'm talking to may be doing things I don't like, but you know what? I'm going to try to ignite the spark in that person. I'm going to try to get to what's really fundamentally good in that person, and I'm going to shake it up a little bit, and I'm going to get that person to see a different moral vision. And I know I can do it because I know that spark is waiting to be ignited and I can do it. And I'm not going to make moral judgments about this person. I'm not going to, while I'm talking with this person, be thinking, this is a bad person. I'm not going to think that. I'm going to think this is a person who's, who's struggling, who's trying to find a way. And I'm, I'm honored to be a part of that. That's principle number one. Principle number two. Default position, people aren't stupid. There is a strain of elitism that runs through the animal movement that is disconcerting beyond all belief. This idea, well, we can't talk to this. As a matter of fact, again, every day, I mean, I could point to examples that I engage in, that I that I encounter every single day of these things that I'm talking about. For example, this morning, I, I um, had an exchange on Twitter uh, with um, something called Vegan Etsy, I think, uh, uh, E-T-S-Y. Uh, and it's apparently some collective of people who have vegan businesses. And they were uh, criticizing me because they were saying that I'm just a, not realistic or delusional, I believe is what they said, because people aren't going to become vegan overnight. Well, I never said that they were going to become vegan overnight. What I'm saying is that we ought to be clear. And they were responding to my criticism of Meat-Free Monday. I think Meat-Free Monday is absurd. I think the idea of promoting this, you know, the, the idea of promoting a distinction between meat and other animal products is, is crazy. It, you cannot justify a distinct, there is no morally coherent distinction between meat and other animal products. Dairy, dairy, animals used in dairy are kept alive longer. They're treated as a general matter. They're treated every bit as badly, if not worse, than animals used for meat, which is pretty hard to do. But, I mean, they're treated horribly. As bad, if not worse. And they all end up in the same slaughterhouse anyway. So this idea that we promote vegetarianism. I mean, I have an essay on my website. Maybe I'll post it uh, along with the announcement of the podcast about about um, vegetarianism as a gateway to veganism. That's nonsense. That is nonsense. And and um, you know, so trying reinforcing this distinction between meat and other animal products is simply again another marketing tool. Let's you know, let's 
let's let people or, or let's encourage people to go and, you know, bake cupcakes with welfare ingredients or whatever they're being, you know, and, and, and continue to eat uh, all sorts of suffering and death in dairy products. And let's make them, you know, let, let, let's, let's, let's reinforce this artificial distinction between meat and other animal products. That's crazy. Okay. Now, yeah, I realize people are not going to go vegan overnight, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't really be clear. As a matter of fact, what it does mean is that we should be really clear. We should be really clear and present a clear, unequivocal vegan message. Going back to principle one, not in a judgmental way. In a way in which we take the other person seriously as a moral in, you know, interlocutor. I mean, somebody who's having a, a serious discussion with us. Somebody that we believe is good at heart. Who is, who does care about moral issues. Okay? But we ought to be clear with people that no consumption of animal products can be justified. All of these distinctions that we're making are totally arbitrary. Animal people are all upset this morning because somebody named Lady Gaga, and you know what? I, don't, I, don't, I do not believe I have ever... I assume she's a, a singer or an actress or something. I mean, I don't know what she is, but I, I mean, I've heard of her before, but I don't really know anything about her, except I know that animal people are upset this morning because she showed up at something last night with a meat dress, and last week they were upset because she was in a meat bikini. My friends, let me ask you a question. What the hell is the difference between a meat dress and a leather jacket? Answer, there is none. So what are we all upset about? I mean, we draw these crazy distinctions, fur and leather and wool. It's all the same. If you think wool is different from fur or leather, you don't know how wool is produced. Educate yourself. Educate yourself about mule sing, the practice of mule sing. Go and watch shearing. It's horribly violent. And you know what? What do you think? Those, those sheep die of old age? They die in slaughterhouses. So the wool that you're wearing right now may have been shorn from an animal that was on his or her way to the slaughterhouse. Not that it would matter because they're all going to go to the slaughterhouse anyway. But it's all part, I mean, it's, it's all violent. It all results in suffering, in trauma, in distress, in pain, and death. There is no distinction. Fur, wool, leather, silk, all the same. Meat, dairy, eggs, Whatever. doesn't matter. It's all the same. And we ought to be really clear on that. If somebody says, hey, look, I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to take my own steps, this is how I'm going to do it. That's fine, obviously. You know, encourage people, give them as much support as you can, as much education as you can, reach out to them as much as they want to be reached out to. That's great. And if they say, look, you know, I'm going to go... I'm going to I'm going to have my own meat-free Monday and then I'll have my own dairy-free Tuesday and you know my own wool-free Wednesday or whatever they can do. But the message ought to be clear that we as vegan advocates should never be taking the position if we care about animals as members of the moral community and you believe that we have no justification for using animals however you mainly we treat them then our message ought to be clear that we have there is no moral justification for using any of them. So if somebody says to me, if, if somebody comes up to me, as they frequently do, I've given up meat. And, you know, and I say, well, you know, I understand. I understand that you think that that's a, a, a real step forward. Uh, I said, but, you know, what about the rest of the stuff? And the response I'll get is, well, you know, this is the first step I'm taking. Okay, fine. That's great. However, delude thyself not. <laughs> if you think that eating that dairy stuff that you're eating... If you think that that's like resulting in less suffering, 
I mean, there's probably more suffering in a glass of milk than there is in a pound of steak. I wouldn't consume either of them. But I mean, the idea that dairy is some benign product is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. There is enormous amount, an enormous amount of violence and death in dairy products. And all sorts of stuff. Of, I mean, go to a dairy farm someday. Watch what happens when the cows have their calves taken away. Watch it. I suggest to you, if you hear the cries of the mother, you'll never stick that stuff into your body again. I did that many years ago. I still, I still have nightmares where I, when I visited a dairy farm many, many years, I've seen a number of them, but one that I saw a long time ago. Actually, a very small dairy farm. A, a dairy farm that most animal advocates would say, this is a very humane place. And relative to the huge places, I suppose there were differences. But as far as I'm concerned, there were differences without a bottom line distinction. It's like torturing somebody on a waterboard with pad, with a pad, and playing music that they like. You know, is that better than, you know, if you're going to be waterboarded, is it better to um, listen to Pink Floyd or Lady Gaga? Um, I, assuming she's a singer. Uh, I, I, would, I would choose Pink Floyd. However, that's my musical taste. How, I, but, but, I mean, it's still, waterboarding is a really horrible thing, right? I mean, there, no one would would take that seriously. Why do we take seriously the idea that, well, you know, we can torture mother cows, we can take their babies away from them, and, and we can keep them pregnant constantly, and, and we can keep them in, you know, a, 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 not an intensive situation, but in a, in a relatively confined situation still, even in these supposedly more humane places. And, and you know, we can do all sorts of, in, you know, we can, we can subject them to all sorts of suffering. And then, you know, when, when they get completely spent after six years, we'll send them off to the slaughterhouse, and, and we'll take their male children and send their male children off to veal crates and stuff like that. I, you know, what are we talking about here? And so, so, um, you know, so I agree that, you know, people aren't going to go. So, so to my friends at Vegan Etsy, let me make it clear. Let me make it clear to the Vegan Etsy team. I do not believe that people are going to go vegan overnight, but I very strongly believe that the message ought to be clear. We ought to give people something to aspire to. And this idea that we ought to promote the idea with things like Meat-Free Monday, things like that. Why? I mean, if we're going to have a gimmick like that, why not Vegan Monday or Animal-Free Monday or Violence-Free Monday? How about that? You know, why, why Meat-Free Monday? Why encourage people to think that meat is different from dairy? It ain't. You know, so I think, but this idea that what well, people will never be able to understand this, the answer is they, they will understand it. As a matter of fact, what I can tell you is after doing this for the period of time I've been doing it, one thing that people are always saying to me is that they are confused by positions in the, that come out of the animal movement. People aren't dumb. They understand, you know, when somebody's talking to them about fur, I've heard many people say, well, you know, but this is just an emotional thing because, you know, you people, namely animal people, you people just think that, you know, baby seals are really cute, which they are. I mean, they're very cute. Uh, but people see the connections immediately and they say, well, you know, these people are out here worrying about, you know, baby seals because they're cute while they're wearing wool or while they're wearing leather. I mean, people may not know much about how wool is produced, but they certainly know that, that leather is the skin of an animal. 
they know that 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 whoever had that skin ain't alive anymore. They know that. So you know, I mean, th- this idea that you know we're gonna we're gonna draw these. Dist- I mean, I think it's bad. I think it reinforces confusion, public confusion. But people can see through it when they think about it. And it's caused many people to sort of dismiss the animal position as irrational and as arbitrary. So I think it's really important to make clear that veganism is the moral baseline. We cannot justify using any of these products. If people wish to choose to continue to use them, then that's their choice. But the message should never be unclear. And we should never assume that people are incapable of understanding the vegan message. My experience, the experience of many of the people I know who do vegan advocacy, is people understand it just fine. They understand it just fine. If anything confuses them, it's the welfarist message in lots of ways. But they understand the message just fine. People are not stupid, principle number two. Principle number three, don't get defensive when you talk to people. This is something that's a real problem with animal advocacy because probably every one of us has had the, had the experience of, you know, you're at a dinner party and somebody comes up to you and, and says, why are you eating that salad? Why aren't you eating the steak? And um, you say, well, because I'm a vegan, I don't eat animal products. And then after you get over the, the exchange about, well, they, assume, they may assume you're doing it for health reasons, and you say, no, I don't do it because I don't believe in killing I don't believe in exploiting animals. And then the response is, yeah, but what about exploiting lettuce? You know, the lettuce on your plate didn't, you know... I mean, a book was written, I believe, in 1972 called The Secret Life of Plants. Uh, it's interesting how when people want uh, to focus on something, they focus on it. And uh, The Secret Life of Plants maintained that basically um, uh, plants were sentient in much the same way that humans are. And, um, and or, or that other sentient, be- other beings that we clearly think are sentient are. And, um, and they, now, I mean, they, they made it appear as though plants had, were sort of almost like human-like cognition in a lot of ways. Uh, as far as I know, the experiments in that book haven't been replicated. Uh, and I certainly believe plants are alive. Uh, and uh, that's not particularly controversial. Do I believe plants have minds? Do I think that they are sentient in anything remotely resembling the same way that humans are sentient? Yes, they respond to stimuli if I run an electric, uh, impulse through a wire, a bell will go off. Uh, but um, as I've uh, as I've written quite a bit on this, this, this notion of of, of you know, what about the what about plants question. But people come up to you and ask that question, and a lot of you know a lot of uh, animal advocates get very defensive uh, because it's all often asked in a sarcastic way or in you know. Uh, uh, in a way in which you feel that the um, your your position, your moral position, is being denigrated. Think about this: if somebody really doesn't, you know, if somebody really is not engaged or doesn't want to engage you, and they walk up to you and they say, "Why aren't you eating the steak?" and you say, "Because I have a moral issue with consuming animal products. I don't eat steak." If they really don't care, they shrug their shoulders and say, "Well, it's more for me," and they walk away. I mean, they don't they don't engage you. Somebody who comes up, I mean, I, I almost always assume that, well, no, I, I, I don't always, I, my default position, my default position for rule three, rule one, default position, people are good at heart. Rule two, default 
default position, people are not stupid. They can understand the vegan message, despite what uh, these organizations tell us, that people will never be able to understand the vegan message. You have to sort of feed it to them in incremental happy meat uh, uh, bits. Um, and, and rule principle number three, uh, their default position should be anybody who's talking with you about the topic wants to and is, is seeking a way to get into it with you that will not unduly disrupt that person's comfort level. That's an important thing. I mean, you've got to make sure when you're having these discussions with people, which can be very intense. I mean, the conversation I had with, with the person at Whole Foods yesterday was, was pretty intense. Um, but I, I believe uh, that, that, that for the most part, I can, I can pull off that sort of conversation because of principle number one. I believe she's good at heart. Principle number two, I believe she's not stupid. In principle number three, nothing she says is going to get me to react. I will respond to what she says, but I'm not going to react to what she says. Now, she didn't say anything that was that was sarcastic or rude, and people often do. You know, and people will often get defensive, um, and they will get rude with you. And don't respond by getting defensive as well, because then that just makes the, the conversation sort of spiral downward. Um, understand that we are confronting an entrenched behavior that has so many cultural roots to it that when you are talking with someone about veganism, what they may be hearing is, you know, they're thinking about Thanksgiving dinners with their grandmother who died last year and how much they love her and loved her and, 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 um, and, and how, you know, you, you're spoiling that memory now and things like that. I mean, you're talking about, about a, a, a cultural Act, about an activity that is so woven into our day-to-day experience that it should not surprise us that when we discuss this issue with people, we get we get the 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 silly, you know, the the sarcastic and sometimes the rude responses and things like that, um, and and people say things to us that we think uh, uh, we interpret as denigrating our moral position, and maybe they are intended to do that. But always remember, if the person really didn't you know if, if the person wasn't engaging you on some level they would just walk away and and now are there some people who are just you know loudish and, and nasty and rude and you're never going to get anywhere with them yes yes there are but um, the default position should be that you know somebody says to you um, you know or, or gives you a catch a question you know what do you, what do your dogs eat well they're vegans I mean they are vegans and um, However, I always say, but I have friends who have cats. I have very, very committed vegan friends who have cats. And I've never lived with a cat. And I don't really understand, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the dogs prosper on a, on a vegan diet. They absolutely love it. Um, and our dogs are very, very healthy. And they live to be ancient. They, 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 they get to, and we, we adopt dogs that have health problems in some cases. And so, and we, um, we've had uh, tremendous uh, experience with, uh, with using vegan diets in terms of uh, really increasing their longevity, making, keeping them more active and things like that. And so um, rotting flesh, I don't think is really very good for, for, for anybody. But uh, I have friends who have cats, and and I these people these are committed vegan people. These are people who don't eat, wear, or use animal products. These are people who devote a lot of their time and energy to vegan outreach and vegan advocacy. 
Um, and um, uh, they don't I, don't, I don't mean when I say vegan outreach, I don't mean the organization vegan outreach, which I don't, which I don't even consider to be a, uh, a vegan organization. I consider it to be a flexitarian organization. But, um, but they engage, they're engaged in vegan advocacy. Uh, and they have cats that who have who have had health problems on vegan on on vegan diets and they're you know they're really frustrated and they end up feeding their their cats some animal products now do i think that that's a good idea no and i i confront that when people ask me what what my dogs eat and i say they're vegans but if what you really want to get to is would i feed my dogs meat if it were absolutely necessary and the answer is it would be a hell of a horrible thing for me and I would not think it was morally justifiable, but I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because we have gotten, we've created this nightmare called domestication. We've created a nightmare called, you know, we have we have a nightmare of domesticated animals. And what are we going to do with them? I mean, you know, it's not it's not morally acceptable to sort of say, well, to hell with them, let them starve, or I'm going to throw them outside and let them starve. Um, and you know, if they do well, they do well, and if they don't, they don't. Um, I don't think that's that's a, an all right option. I'm not happy about the option of feeding cats cat food, you know, meat cat food. I'm not happy about that. I don't think it's morally justifiable. It may be morally excusable. There's a difference between saying something's justifiable and saying it's excusable. It doesn't mean it's right. It means there are situations where we don't really have a good choice. You know, there are situations where we don't really have a good choice. If I were on a desert island and there were no, absolutely no vegetable products around, would I, after a period of time of starvation, would I, if there were only animals to eat, would I only, would I kill and eat an animal? And the answer is, I'm sure that I would. But if I were on a desert island with a human being and there were no vegetables around and there were no, you know, there was nothing around to eat, nothing, absolutely nothing around to eat, would I kill a human being? To survive, and the answer is, well, it's a pretty disgusting thought. But then again, so is eating, so is eating a rabbit. Um, but you know, would I would I kill a human being? And the answer is, well, you know, people have done that, and they do that. I mean, you know, I mean, is it justifiable? No. Is it excusable? Do you know? Is it, in other words, is it a wrong thing? But we understand why you do it. And the answer is, yeah. When you're starving to death, you know, you do things like that, and because you don't really have a good choice. You know, you have the choice of either starving to death or killing someone. Well, do I think it's a good idea? No. Do I think it's justifiable? No. Do I think it's excusable? Yes, I do. If, if in fact, there are no other choices. Because sometimes you're just in a situation where every everything, because of the situation you've been placed in. So similarly, those people who live with cats... Um, I mean, oftentimes people ask me that question, what do you do about, you know... What about vegan? You know, what about uh, feeding cats meat? Um, and I always ask them, "Are you vegan?" And many times they say, "No, I'm not." And I say, "Well, then, what the hell are we talking about your cats for? You know, you can make, you know, you can survive, you you can prosper, you can be really healthy on a vegan diet. Why are you choosing to continue to eat meat for no good reason, or dairy for no good reason, honey for no good reason? You know, whatever. Why are you continuing to consume that stuff? Let's not worry about your cats. Let's worry about you. And and um. And so, or let's not worry about cats as a general matter. Let's worry about people who can, humans who can make choices. Um, and, um, and so, 
So, you know, the catch of questions, they're there. And, but people, it's, you shouldn't interpret that. You shouldn't interpret the catch of questions as, as hostile. They're, people are trying to sort of see what your moral principles are. And one way that people test moral principles is, by, it, it is, is in this way of asking you questions to see how far your principle goes because there's a tendency to think that if you don't know where to draw the line, then your principle is, 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 is too open-ended and meaningless. That's wrong, and we need to show people that that's wrong and that they recognize that that's wrong. Okay? All right. Um, and, you know, and when people come up and say, what about the screaming lettuce and things like that? You know, I mean, again, is it annoying? Sure, it's annoying. It's extremely annoying. But people are not comfortable they're not comfortable. They're, try- they're, 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 they're trying to find a way to discuss it with you, which will diffuse the tension. And they wouldn't be making the comment, in 95% of the cases, they wouldn't be making the comment that you're interpreting to be sarcastic. They wouldn't be making the comment if they really didn't want to engage you. They're trying to figure out a way to get in. They're trying to figure out a way, how do I start this discussion without it becoming too serious? And the answer is, you're going to make it real serious, but you're not going to be judgmental, and you're going to move it in a serious direction, and you're going to engage that person. Why? Because your default position is they've got a good heart. Your default position is they're not stupid. They're educable people. And they can understand your message of veganism. You just need to explain it. Rule number four, don't get frustrated. This is sort of a flips. This is a related to principle number three. Don't get frustrated. Um, a lot of animal people say to me all the time, um, I get frustrated because I get asked the same question all the time. I mean, even when they're good questions. And, and, uh, and I always respond by saying, uh, yeah, I, I can identify with that. The number of times I get asked the question, because of what these large organizations are doing in promoting happy meat um, and promoting welfare reform and, and deluding the public into believing that welfare reform is meaningful in any significant way, uh, I frequently get comments about, well, you know, is an animal welfare a good thing? Ought we not to... Uh, to reform animal exploitation, you know, given that people aren't going to give it up overnight, given that we're going to have it, uh, shouldn't we reform it? Shouldn't we regulate it? And the answer is no, because the regulate, I mean, first of all, um, if something is wrong, we ought not to, you know, again, it goes back to the, um, if, if child molestation is wrong, even though it's ubiquitous, even though it's not going away overnight, even though it's, it's pervasive in the society, that doesn't mean we should advocate for humane pedophilia. Uh, just because rape is a regular occurrence, is a daily occurrence, happens to zillions of women every second, um, and to men, but, you know, but it's, you know, to, to zillions of rape victims every second. Um, th- that doesn't mean that, you know, yeah, it's ubiquitous. It's not going away overnight. It ain't going away anytime soon. Probably never going away. That doesn't mean that we should advocate for humane rape. But I would say this. In, in addition to that argument, in addition to that argument, we can also make the, the argument uh, that animal welfare reform doesn't do anything. All it does is make animal production more economically efficient for the most part. I mean, there are, there are minor counterexamples of that. They are minor. They are few. For the most part, the reason why animal welfare reform ever gets implemented, enacted, adopted is because it actually makes production more efficient. We're seeing this right now. We're seeing this right now with veal crates, gestation crates. There are alternatives to those things that actually increase production efficiency of animals and are therefore better for the bottom line of institutional users. So, you know, don't get frustrated. People ask you the same question 8 million times. Let me say this. One way you can be a really ineffective educator 
is if somebody asks you a question and you make that person think that, 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 that the question isn't a good question, always engage the person you're talking to. Because that person is coming to you sincerely. The person who's, who, the, the person who's asking you the question that you've been asked 43 million times before, that person wasn't part of those 43 million other discussions. And, and, and so this person is, is, is struggling, trying to understand an idea. And she asks you a question. And to the extent that you sort of sigh and, and convey to her that her question's a bad question, a dumb question, or whatever, you're not going to get that person. You're not going to get that person involved in the sort of intimacy you need. Education, really effective education, is a form of intimacy. And you're not going to achieve that level of intimacy if you convey to that person that her question or her concerns are things you've heard before or things that you don't really want to talk about, whatever. I've been asked probably, I've been conservatively, 10,000 times uh, about animal welfare reform here in Europe, in, 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 you know, I mean, I mean, it's a question I have been asked countless numbers of times. And every time I'm asked it, I try my very hardest to convey to the person who asked me the question, the level of enthusiasm and excitement that I would have if I were being asked the question for the very first time. Always. Always, always be enthusiastic. Engage the person who's asking you the question. Never, never let that person feel that her question is a dumb question or one that you don't want to answer because you've answered it 53 million times before. Don't do that. If you, if you want to achieve the level of intimacy you need to educate, every time you hear a question, it's the first time you've heard that question. Okay, final principle. One, default position should be people have good hearts. They care about morality. Principle number two, default position, people aren't stupid. Principle number three, don't get defensive. Respond, don't react. I like that, actually. Respond, don't react. Um, That's principle number three. Four, don't get frustrated. Every time you're asked a question that you've been asked many times before, treat it as though you're hearing it for the first time. Engage the person you're talking to. Engage the person you're talking to. Make that person feel. And I don't care whether you're talking to a group of 300 or 500 people. Make that person feel as that as though that person is the only person in the room. And you're totally into what that person is asking you. That's how you educate. The fifth point, the fifth principle. You need to learn some basics. One of the things I find very disconcerting is... People in the animal movement, and I suspect this is this is true of other social movements, although I think it's particularly, I mean, I, I am involved in other social movements, and, um, and, and I find it disconcerting the extent to which people who are rel- relatively new to animal advocacy, you know, start websites and blogs and what like, whatnot, and, and many of them don't know what, what, what they're talking about. Now, that's fine. I mean, it's, the internet is, at least right now, still free. But, um, and so people ought to express themselves however they want them to express themselves. But if you want to be effective educators, you know, I mean, that's the big if. That's the conditional. If you want to be effective educators, then you really need to understand, you need to understand the basics. 
And, I mean, if you're going to talk to people about animal rights theory, know some. I mean, the number of people, I mean, I've known a lot of people who own books. You know, they own various books, whether they're written by me or Tom Reagan or Peter Singer or other people. They have books. They own the books. It's not clear they read them. As a matter of fact, it's somewhat clear they don't read them. I mean, the number of times that that people have said to me when I said, well, you know, but Peter Singer doesn't support animal rights. As a matter of fact, I mean, his moral position of utilitarianism, he's a consequentialist philosopher. He rejects the idea of moral rights. And people look at me and say, well, but wait a minute. Are you telling me that animal liberation did not promote animal rights? I said, no, no. If you read the book, he explicitly says that he doesn't, that he does not uh, embrace the notion or accept the notion of moral rights for animals. He's a utilitarian. They don't. I mean, it's part of what utilitarianism is. Is the notion that you can't have rules that rule things out because that's what rights do. Rights, rights say there are certain things you can't do, and the utilitarian says you've got to be able to, you've got to have, be able to do everything if it'll maximize the good consequences. So you know, if 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 um, uh, uh, using a human, one human or ten humans to find a cure for cancer, we'll find a cure for cancer. Then to say that they have rights not to be used in that way would deprive us of the benefits of finding a cure for cancer by subjecting them to uh, 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 you know, a very painful set of experiments and killing them. I mean, that's what utilitarianism is, right? So, but the number of people have said to me, you know, gee, you, I mean, yeah, I'm really surprised. You said earlier, I, did I hear you correctly in your lecture to say that Peter Singer does not support animal rights? And, and the answer is, yeah, read what he says. Read what he says. Um, but, um, I mean, you know, it's not, no secret right there in the book. Um, and, and so uh, it's important to read things. It's important to learn. It's important to understand the basics. Before You owe that to the... If you're going to be an educator for animals, then as much as I, as I respect the fact that, that many of you really feel passionately about it and you have you know, a great deal of, of emotion in, invested and you really want to change the world, you can't change the world without changing the way people think, and you can't change the way people think without being able to address their concerns, show that their arguments are invalid or or not sound. And in order to do that, you have to understand the basics. So read things, learn things, you know, learn about the ecological effects of animal agriculture, learn about the health so at least some of the, you know, learn about it. So at least you can converse with people. So the people say, oh, don't you need animal products for protein? Yet another thing we've heard, we've all heard many, many times. But when you're talking about the moral issues, you have to understand a little bit about moral theory. One of the things I tried to do, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's been successful or not, although I get a, a, a good deal of feedback from it, is the website, abolitionistapproach.com. The, the primary purpose for the website was to present educational materials in an internet age where people aren't reading a lot of books and to try to present the ideas. I mean, we have a section on, on the thing on videos and I've got, you know, theory of animal rights, animals as property, animal rights versus animal welfare, you know, etc. And, you know, you sit, you watch the things and the idea was, well, yeah, if you write Introduction to Animal Rights, you get a lot more out of it than watching this 30-minute uh, flash presentation. But, you know, if you're not going to read the book, then what I want to do is get you to focus on the structure of the argument that I present in the book. So that's what I do in Theory of Animal Rights. Uh, in Animal Rights versus Animal Welfare, I, I explain uh, the basic differences. I mean, if, you, if you're not going to read Rain Without Thunder, um, which, you know, I think is, 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 is a, a, a book that I, well, I wrote the book to, 
to try to inform people about the distinction between animal rights and animal welfare. If you're not going to read the book, at least watch the Flash presentation, which talks about the distinction between animal rights and animal welfare. Now, are you going to get everything out of that that you're going to get out of the book? The answer is no. But I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're not going to read the book, or if you want a condensed version of what the argument is, look at the video. Look at the Flash presentation. Animals as property. Again, I wrote a whole book on that in 1995. God, it was a long time ago. Um, but in 1995, I wrote Animals, Property, and the Law. And, and um, you know, it's a, it's a very lengthy book. Um, if, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it, it, it's, um, it's a book which presents um, the argument that because animals are property, because they have the economic status of chattel property, animal welfare reform is never really going to provide significant protection for their interests. Now, you know, there's a condensed version called Animals as Property on the video page. It's a flash presentation. You sit, you watch it. You at least get the structure of the arguments. We have you know, flyers that you can download for free. There are you know, my flyers, flyers that other people have done. There are the blog essays in which what I try to do is take ideas and present them in simple ways. So I'm sure there are other resources out there that, you know, and, and indeed I link to, to a bunch of them on the site. But at least, you know, learn some, you've got to learn some basics. In order to be a teacher, you have to be a student first. In order to be, think about that, in order to be a teacher, you've got to be a student first. Now, let me give you, uh, those are the five principles. One, default position, everyone that you're talking with has a good heart, a real spark in there, a spark of, of moral spirit, and you're there to you know you're you're there to, to 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 get that going into a conflagration that is going to change their lives and move them in the direction of nonviolence in all aspects of their lives and get them to stop eating, wearing, and consuming non-human animals. Principle number two: People are not stupid. That should be your default position. No one is incapable. You know, I always tell my students, my law students, you want to know if you if you understand something, uh, try to see if you can explain it to a reasonably intelligent, not a brilliant, but a, you know, an average, a 15 year old or a, you know, a teenager of reasonable intelligence. If you can't, you don't understand the issue. If you can't, if you can't explain proximate causation or you know, the mental states required for culpability in criminal law, for criminal law liability, if you can't explain those things, those concepts, to a reasonably intelligent, no, reasonably intelligent, we're not, about, we're not talking about a brilliant or highly talented young person, we're talking about, take a kid of average intelligence, if you can't explain those concepts, you don't understand them, okay? And education, you know, we should always be simple without being simplistic. We should always be simple without being simplistic. And, and there's no idea that you can't, I don't care what, what it is. If you understand quantum physics, you can explain it to a kid. If you don't, you can't. If it's confused in your mind, you will not be a good teacher. Uh, and so, assume people are not stupid. They can understand things. The burden's on you to make it clear. The burden is on you to be a good teacher. The burden is on you to be a good teacher. Don't get defensive with people. Respond, don't react. Respond, don't react. Principle four, don't get frustrated. And always treat the question you get, or always respond to the question you get, as though it's the first time you've ever heard that question. 
Principle five, learn some basics. Before you, be, before you become a teacher, you have to be a student first. Let me give you just a couple of quick examples before I end this commentary because I do have to get off to school. Uh, and that is, people always say, well, how do you start a conversation? And the answer is, there are as many different ways to start a conversation as there are different people in different contexts. Um, one way uh, that, uh, let me, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples uh, before I end. In 2007, an American football player named Michael Vick was arrested for participation in a dogfighting ring. And he was imprisoned. He came out in 2009. He signed with, uh, I believe, the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, and and um, there was a lot of controversy uh, in 2007, and there was a lot of controversy in 2009 because everybody thought what Michael Vick did was really horrible, which it was. Dogfighting is absolutely terrible. I have found the Michael Vick hypothetical or example, not hypothetical because it happened, but I find the Michael Vick situation or example uh, very useful in teaching because um, I will give you an example of how I do this. Uh, when there was a lot of controversy about Michael Vick, and there still continues to be controversy about Michael Vick, uh, but, but particularly when it was at its high point, I would, when I started a lecture on the subject, I would say, well, I'm sure that you all saw the coverage today about Michael Vick. And everybody would murmur, and I'd say, it's really horrible what he did, isn't it? And everybody would, you know, they, they'd nod their heads. And I'd say, okay, well, I need some explanation here. I mean, why is what he did bad? I mean, we all know what he did was bad, but why is what he did? I mean, what, what are the reasons why? What are the reasons? And, you know, you'll get people saying, well, you know, because he hurt those dogs, or because those dogs really suffered, or the dogs were... And I said, yeah, yeah, I understand all that. I said, but why is that bad? I mean, why? yes, the dogs suffered, the dogs died, but why is that bad? And then eventually, after you ask the question enough times, people say, well, you know, if you're going to make, make an animal suffer, there's got to be a good reason. If you're going to kill an animal, there's got to be a good reason. And you can't just can't kill animals and make them suffer for, for entertainment purposes. That's monstrous. Okay, that is monstrous. Now let me ask you all, how many of you eat meat and other animal products? And then virtually every hand goes up. And I say, okay, I'm puzzled. Someone's got to explain to me, what's the difference between what Mike Vick did and what y'all are doing? Because what, what justification do you have for consuming animal products other than a version of entertainment? You like the taste. There's no necessity. Whether, if, if there were some necessity, we would at least have an interesting discussion about whether the necessity would justify it. But there ain't no necessity. And you've just told me that you're all horrified by what he did because what he did could not be justified under any framework of analysis because there was no way in which it could be construed as necessary. And you watch people struggle with that. And it's as if like a large brick came down on them. And then you'll get responses. People say, well, you know, but, but, but he really enjoyed it. And I said, what difference does it make? You enjoy consuming animals. You pay somebody else to do it. You don't do it yourself. Most people don't do it themselves. They don't slaughter their own animals. So what? It's like saying in criminal law, what's the difference between if I, with premeditation and deliberation, kill somebody, it's murder. If I pay somebody else to do it, it's also murder. The fact that I pay somebody to do it doesn't make it not murder. Doesn't make it less culpable. It's the same thing. Whether I do it myself or I pay somebody else to do it, dead body, you know, I, I want a dead body, I get a dead body. It doesn't matter, matter who does it. 
Somebody does it. I either do it directly or I cause somebody else to do it. And, and what, you'd, what you'll find is, you know, another way of, of getting into this with people is, as I was expressing in terms of my conversation with a woman at Whole Foods yesterday, is to ask people, do you have a companion animal? Yeah, I have a dog, I have a cat. I mean, almost everybody you talk to, particularly in a, in a society like ours, they will have had some significant relationship with a non-human at some point in their lives. If not now, at some point. And it's really significant. It's stuck with them. And what you need to do is to get, just get people to see. Morality and changing moral paradigms is often the time, is often, no, I wouldn't say often, I would say probably always, a matter of changing people's vision, the way they see things. And the way you change the way people see things is by giving them visions that allow them to see things differently. So when you ask them, hey, you know, you just told me for the past eight minutes about how much you love your dog or loved your dog when you were a teenager and got through those horrible teenage years because everybody has horrible teenage years. And, you know, you got through those horrible teenage years as a result of your dog at a time when you thought nobody loved you. Your dog always loved you. And you loved your dog, didn't you? Oh, yeah. What's the difference between the dog you love and the cow you eat? What is the difference? And you'd be shocked, absolutely shocked, at how people respond to that. They never thought of it that way before because we live in a culture which doesn't facilitate their thinking about it. We live in a culture which sells us products of death wrapped up in all sorts of affirmative wrappers of delusion with the most recent product being happy meat. That is a product of death wrapped up with ribbons of delusion with a big fat stamp of approval from quote animal people end quote. It's a culture we live in. That's what we have to deal with. So the five principles default position People have good hearts. They're good people. They want to be. People are good. They want to behave morally. That's why they're talking to you. Two, people aren't stupid. Your burden as an educator is, is learning how to explain things in simple but not simplistic ways. Making, making use of three minutes if you have it with somebody or being able to engage them for ten minutes or for ten hours. People aren't stupid. They can learn. We live in a culture which does not facilitate critical thinking. That doesn't mean people can't think critically. They can. Don't patronize them and don't engage in this elitist fantasy promoted by these animal organizations that people aren't capable of understanding the fundamentals of veganism and vegan theory. Don't get defensive. Respond. Don't react. Respond, don't react. Don't get frustrated. You are going to be asked the same question millions of times. The more you do animal advocacy, I mean, you know, I could sit down and write 20 questions right now that I have been asked thousands of times. And every time I'm asked by any person who asks me, I always treat that question as though I'm hearing it for the very first time. Because if I want the level of intimacy 
that I need to educate somebody. That is what is required. And also, that's what it deserves. That's what that situation deserves. You have somebody who is willing to, to walk with you and willing to, 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 to go there, to, to, to take at least some steps there with you. Engage that person. You don't engage that person by making her feel as though her question is boring or not exciting to you or not interesting. Every time you hear the question, whether it's for the first time or the eight millionth time, it's the first time. Learn some basics. Learn some basics. You're going to talk about animal rights theory, know something about it. You're going to talk about animals as property, know something about it. You're going to talk about the problems with welfare reform, know something about it. You're going to talk about the need for veganism, talk about it. I'm sorry, learn, uh, learn about it before you talk about it. Okay, so learn about these things. You need to do some basic, uh, basic learning. All right, well, that's it. I've got to go. It's, uh, I apologize that it's gone on longer than I wanted it to. Um, if you're not vegan, if you're not vegan, why are you listening to this? But if you're not vegan, go vegan. If you're not, if you're not vegan and you're listening to this, and you're not vegan now, why? Uh, as a matter of fact, if there is anybody who's, who, uh, who, who is listening to this who isn't vegan, write to me and tell me why you're not vegan. I need to understand that. In any event, if you're not vegan, go vegan. It's incredibly easy. I mean, don't listen to this propaganda from these organizations that it's difficult, that it's daunting, da 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 That's nonsense. It's easy. It's incredibly easy. And in 2010, it is a piece of vegan cake big time. It's better for your health. It is better. I mean, mainstream healthcare people are telling us that animal products are killing us. It is better for the environment. Animal products are an ecological disaster. But the most important thing, it's the morally right thing to do. It's what justice requires. It's the minimal that we owe to non-human animals. It's to not to treat them as things and to, 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 to not treat them as things and to stop eating, wearing, and using them. Thank you very much for listening to commentary number 19, talking with non-vegans about veganism. And as I say, uh, depending on the feedback I get from you, I can do future commentaries in which I address specific issues. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.